I like to think of the analogy of the COVID vaccine. Some companies took money for development, but really what helped create that market was advanced purchase agreements. If companies have an expectation that there will be a market, they will do the R&D. You're listening to Making Medicine, stories from the early stage life sciences ecosystem, a podcast that explores the people and deals that have led to the medicines, devices, and technologies that keep us healthy. Let's get into the show. Hello, this is John Stanford, your host of the Making Medicine podcast. I'd like to welcome Kirsten Axelson, a senior advisor from Charles Rivers Associates, who we've had the pleasure of working with on roundtables, reports, some investigations to discuss the implication of price controls and how policies that are being discussed in Congress would harm innovation in the life science industry. I should say that I have the pleasure of being good friends with Kirsten, and I'm so glad that in her capacity with Charles Rivers Associates, CRA has joined us for some of our Incubate Policy Lab reports that have come out in recent days. But that's just one hat she wears, and she has a long bio, which I'll hit on really quick before we get into the show. She sat previously on the leadership team for Pfizer's Strategy and Business Evaluation Program. She's currently a scholar with the American Enterprise Institute, or AEI. She's also a Health Innovator Fellow with the Aspen Institute. And as if that wasn't enough, She's the founder of the Preparedness and Treatment Equity Coalition. And we've got to have you back, Kirsten, to talk about the great working work you're doing wearing all of those hats. But we have you here today because you've been doing some great work uh, with Incubate, with CRA, to be looking at this conversation around price controls. And there's a lot going on in the media and in Congress. And, you know, we've really brought you because you've gotten really close with the investor community. And so I'd like to kick it off by saying, you know, in these conversations you've had, in these roundtables and interviews, what have you found? What implications would price controls have on that early stage investment ecosystem that we know drives innovation and new medicines in this country? Wonderful. Thank you. And thank you for that kind introduction. So, look, I will start off by saying it is absolutely clear that the U.S. does pay higher prices for medicines than other countries, particularly for certain programs and certain medicines. Other countries have shown a willingness to deny access or delay access to new medicines in order to get a lower price. In the U.S., especially uh, outside of um, Medicaid and the VA, where there are uh, mandated uh, price reductions in the U.S., there's been a trade-off where there's faster access to medicines, more choices of medicines, um, and the net price after discounts is higher than it is in other countries. So, you know, importing the price controls from other countries could result in lower costs of medicines, particularly in the near term. The U.S. in many ways subsidizes the health of the world. On the other hand, the U.S. also subsidizes the security of the world as a decision that we've made in order to have the health and the safety in our society that we want. If we were to make that decision to uh, import price controls and get lower uh, cost of medicines, we would have fewer new medicines. There would be probably in the near term just an immediate hit on, on, on the revenue coming from the existing medicines. But going forward, there would be fewer new medicines. The process of developing a drug is very high risk, very high. And, but when you hit it big and a big drug, it can be a big payoff. Most often it's not. About one in 10 medicines uh, recover their costs of development, and those really big winners subsidize the really big losers. That's why early stage biotech companies, when they develop a successful medicine, very often seek to be acquired or partner with a bigger biopharma company that is already 
uh, gained some revenue and built some stability from their successful medicines. And you don't really hear that much about the losers, right? You see the companies that are successful and you uh, often hear uh, people commenting on the profitability of the companies that are successful, but that doesn't consider all the companies that never succeed. So let's go into thinking about what price controls in the U.S. would mean. The U.S. is about 41% of the world's market for new medicines. It's where medicines are developed primarily. A lot of the R&D, a lot of the academic research is done in the U.S., and that's because the U.S. is the biggest market. So if you want to have investigators that can speak about your medicine, you'll do your clinical trials in the U.S. People come to the U.S. to study in our academic centers because there is funding for cutting-edge technology. And that cutting-edge technology is um, often supported by the NIH, but there's an expectation that at some point, if successful, that technology will be purchased by a biopharma company where the huge cost will be borne by them for getting that drug through clinical trials. If that technology is not going to be purchased by a larger biopharmaceutical company and the huge cost of development and clinical development is borne by them, you won't see the money continuing to flow through to the academic research centers. Yes, the NIH money might continue, but the academic research centers also make a lot of money on patents, which again supports the academics, the PhDs, and these programs that allow students to grow and some of the best science to happen in the United States. So it's I, I like the way you frame that at the end, that that government influx. And, and we've heard some folks, some policymakers say, look, we can just double and triple the NIH budget. It'll it'll be fine, because what you've pointed to is, yeah, there's an input of federal dollars into some of these academic ones. But there's also an input on the other side, the pulling out of promising technologies and patents and medicines and that's done by early stage biotechs and the VCs that back them up. And we've heard, well, hey, can't we just increase the input on the government side? Any thoughts about is government maybe the right way to commercialize these products? Or is there is there something special, a je ne sais quoi, if you will, to the to the biotech and VC ecosystem? If you were to consider a world where we just increase NIH funding um, to go into clinical development, so they're spending the you know millions and often billions of dollars to develop a drug, also consider the fact that most drugs fail. So um, politically, um, how is that going to go in a predictable budget environment where the NIH budget is growing or not growing if one year several hundred million dollars are lost and one year um, you know it's it's a payoff. I like to think of the analogy of the COVID vaccines. Some companies took money for development, but really what helped create that market was advanced purchase agreements. If companies have an expectation that there will be a market, they will do the R&D. And they will do the R&D where they think there's going to be a market. Is every drug perfect and incremental? No. There's definitely follow-on innovation, and there are drugs that you, know, you could say are hugely beneficial, and there are drugs that you could say have, have a moderate benefit. But what the government can do is create an environment where biopharma companies and their investors know if we develop a drug, there is a good chance that that drug will be commercially successful and they will pursue that research, even though they know they could potentially lose if the science doesn't pan out. So if there's a market, I mean, it's kind of we're back to ninth grade econ. If there's a market, then entrepreneurs, companies, small and large, will grow to fill that market. Would it be fair to say that by bringing in a price control um, and and sort of removing that opportunity for return, that kind of takes the market out of this market-based approach? Is that is that a fair sort of assessment of what these price controls could do? That's absolutely a fair assessment. Look how little development there has been in antimicrobials 
antibiotics and vaccines until the last two years. All of a sudden there's a market. And now not only are a number of biopharma companies around the world pursuing this market, you know, they're, they're, they're pursuing it in a way where the R&D is as fast as it's ever been. Um, and again, that's because there is primarily from the U.S. an acknowledgement that there will be purchasers if there is a successful treatment. So we kind of have a case study right here proving this. AMR, and, and we had a great uh, great show on AMR, so I'll make the shameless plug that if you haven't listened to that episode, make sure you listen to the AMR episode. But AMR, vaccines, you know, these items that didn't really have a market, the moment we created a market, we saw, I think the numbers I've seen was north of 400, but sometimes said 1,000 biotechs turned their attention to this. Now, we saw BioNTech and Pfizer and Moderna uh, develop these mRNA platforms, but what doesn't get told is these several hundreds companies that dropped what they were doing to chase this market. And that's the powerful force that I, I do hope policymakers are picking up on is that's what we want. That's what you don't get if you just say, okay, give NIH the entirety of the U.S. R&D budget. Surely we'll get good stuff. No, we've seen market-based forces to, to, to be the strongest. Um, I want to I want to pivot to something in the weeds, but you know we have this brilliant scholar on the line here, so we it's time to ask the tough questions. A lot of this conversation in Washington about why drug pricing has to happen now factors into this big proposal by the Biden administration and Democrats to raise some money, and we can you know they hope to take five hundred billion dollars or so out of the pharmaceutical industry to help pay for this package. And leaving that aside, that $500 billion comes from this CBO or Congressional Budget Office report. And I know you've been doing some, you've been double checking their math a bit and sitting down with some of the experts who, who have some opinions on this. You know, leaving aside the 500 billion, the CBO is really clear, like you said earlier, if you do this, you will get fewer medicines. But there's been some pushback saying CBO may have undercounted just how bad that could be. Can you talk about how maybe C CBO, from your research, may have missed the mark on their calculations here? Absolutely. So, you know, the Congressional Budget Office was given an unenviable task. Um, this would be a tremendously huge policy change. They estimate that it would reduce biopharma global revenues by 19%. Um, that's the equivalent to about a third to 45% reduction in the U.S. Medicare and commercial markets. As a comparison, when uh, Medicare Part D was enacted, which is the biggest increase in, um, in the biopharma market in the last several decades, it was around a 3 to 5% increase in the U.S. market. So, you know, we're, we're talking about um, doing an estimate where an analogy just really doesn't exist. Uh, the Affordable Care Act didn't increase the U.S. biopharmaceutical market. So there's no good recent analog. You know, the analogy I like to think of is if we had just studied seasonal flu, we would have had an idea of how the COVID pandemic would have impacted the U.S., but there would have been a huge amount of error, wide pans, and we would not have thought of many of the mm -hmm. second order effects. So, you know, some of the key issues that uh, me and my colleague, Regina Jayasuria, found um, in the CBO report uh, one, really using um, the, the report relies on estimates of changes in market size, primarily from other countries. Other countries already have price controls. They're much smaller than the U.S. Biopharma companies already expect that there's going to be um, kind of lower expectations from the market. So when markets shrink um, outside of the U.S., 
there's really less of a reaction. Not only is the U.S. 41% of the U.S. of the world's market, it's much more than that for drugs like oncology or rare disease. So it's hard to imagine how uh, any biopharma company would consider investing in a high-risk technology if they felt it was going to be a focus of this policy if the U.S. market was much, much smaller. Not only would the U.S. market be smaller, the U.S. market would be incredibly unpredictable. The a policy such as HR3, if enacted, doesn't dictate which drugs would be affected. So you can imagine there would be a lot of um, anticipating, trying not to invest in the things that the HHS might find uh, interesting and compelling as, um, as a focus of this policy. Now, the drugs that have been um, hugely profitable are many of the drugs that have been hugely beneficial to society, whether it's the hepatitis C drugs, whether it's been statins historically. So you would see, uh, not only would there be fewer drugs, you would see a shift towards drugs that would be under the radar, smaller, lower priced. And while under the radar is good from a budgeteer's perspective, it's not good from a transformative um, to health and society. So the Congressional Budget Office estimates that 18 to 15, 8 to 15 new drugs would be developed would not be developed in the next decade as a result of a price control policy in the U.S., and 30 fewer drugs in the following decade. It's probably right that you would have less of an impact in the near term than in the long term, but there are many other factors uh, and reasons to believe this number is probably an underestimate, but furthermore, it's not just that fewer drugs would be developed, the type of drugs that would be developed would be very different, so it's really considering both of those impacts. Another thing the CBO didn't do was think about the variation by disease area. The, uh, we spoke to the authors of the research that the CBO used to estimate, um, to create their estimate, and they did uh, investigation by disease area and estimated there would be a significant amount of difference. It costs different amounts to uh, develop different types of drugs. The revenue expected um, is different. There's different intensity in the U.S. market. So again, you need to have uh, a consideration that this may have a bigger impact on a higher cost to develop R&D drug than a lower cost to develop R&D drug. In a very, very, as you say, nerdy point, the way the CBO applied the estimate, the primary, the primary estimate, was done using a mathematical computational model, which basically means the size of the effect varies based on how big the effect is, and the CBO just applied an average effect. So really what you would need to have done is, is think about how big the effect is would be for the magnitude of this change, as opposed to just assuming it would be the average effect. So again, another source of underestimation. And then finally, you know, the CBO didn't really consider the mobility of the investor market. The investor market has changed uh, pretty significantly over the last 20 years. Uh, far more uh, investment by venture capital, um, a lot of new drugs coming from early stage biotechs. An early-stage biotech that has one, maybe two drugs, if there is a tremendous uh, change in what that drug might now be worth, they're done. It's not like one of the big biopharma companies where they have a big portfolio and they might be able to manage. If you are not going to have that expectation of revenue, you're not going to get the investors, you're not going to get the, you know, the, the buyout or the partnership from a big biopharma company. Probably uh, the investors we speak to, including in the roundtable, say, yeah, we probably wouldn't change our behavior for a little bit. But over time, we would um, invest differently. And again, you would have that once you kind of know what's in the HHS focus for this policy, you would see flowing away from those types of medicines towards the medicines that would likely not be a focus of this policy, where in reality, you want the investment flowing to the medicines that are most likely to have the biggest impact on human health and be taken up and used in the market and reimbursed by insurance. That, that was a lot to unpack, and I'd say I was with you for five of six, but you're right. The computational average, it is a good thing we have a smart person on the podcast. So unpacking those sort of in 
in a little bit of reverse order, I love that you bring the expertise to say, hey, you didn't even really use the right model here. You know, taking an average is a bit simplistic. And then going to your first point, we're applying this simplistic model to the most complex consideration the CBO has had to do in quite some time. I mean, to your point, this is far larger than Part D. This is even far larger than the pharmaceutical impact of the Affordable Care Act. And I, it was an unenviable task. I, I'm also hearing it was it was an outdated and sort of in an unfair comparison. The point about looking to other countries about how some of these effects have happened, pharmaceutical companies are rational actors and they already know how those companies or countries are going to operate, especially the ones that already have price controls. So it was in, wasn't an apples to apples comparison. And then your point is, you know, being the voice of life science venture capital, we were truly disappointed, like you said, that their measurement of investment and looking at who key actors are was outdated, quite frankly. The days where the large uh, brand name pharmaceuticals are the only actors is behind us. And we do have this robust investment economy at the front end um, that gets seen over the finish line by those large firms. So I really like that assessment. Would it be fair to say that CBO did did a good effort, but quite frankly, the inputs for them to work with, we just don't know how this is going to play out. And it was almost impossible. Do you think that's a fair characterization? I think it's fair to say it was an almost impossible task. There are some things you could have done differently. You know, in addition, they kind of assumed the number of new molecules would stay the same over time when in reality they've been growing. But I would say no amount of, of tinkering to improve retrospective model is going to give us an accurate answer to what a 19% or possibly more reduction in global pharmaceutical revenues would mean. Um, this would have a huge impact on the U.S. market, which is the locus of development. It would just be very, very hard to have an accurate estimate. The main thing that I think we need to take away is that policymakers have not been given the risk profile to measure the risk benefit of this type of a policy. Maybe it's 8 to 15 new medicines. Maybe it's 80 to 150. You know, it's with, with this kind of retrospective analysis. And maybe, what if eight of those, you know, what if it is eight medicines? What if two of them are the medicines for hepatitis mm-hmm. C? Or what if, you know, what if they're the medicines for a, a new hemophilia drug? It's all going to be dependent on what is affected by this policy. And there have been a number of transformational medicines that have been introduced that if we didn't have them, society would be in a very different position. Well, and I think that's a really good point. And I hope everyone, but particularly our policymaking listeners, um, are capturing that. That the drugs most likely to be impacted right out of the gate by this are the drugs that we are using. And that most likely have a tremendous impact in our lives. We're in a place where we can cure hepatitis C. And, and, and yes, that individual cure, you know, can look expensive. If you look at the long-term healthcare savings, maybe not. But, but it, it, we're kind of punishing the medicines that are doing the most good. And you're absolutely right that investor dollars will move, quote unquote, under the radar to places where that we should be wanting all of our dollars flowing where they can have enormous impact. How are they going to tackle rare disease where we know by definition a smaller patient population is going to have a more expensive product? And, you know, we do have so many things. I, everyone points to Alzheimer's, and I think it's fair to point to Alzheimer's. What if that is in this basket? 
But what if it's also some modality? None of us were talking about mRNA 10 years ago. You might have been talking about mRNA 10 years ago. I wasn't. But, you know, what if mRNA was in there? Where would that be leaving us today? So I, I think that's a really, a really good point that we're, we're thinking about this backwards. We want our most expensive drugs to be the ones or the ones that are costing society the most. That's a sign that they're getting used, which is keeping them out of hospitals, keeping them out of the clinic and keeping them healthier, which is actually sort of saving some money. But I want to I want to play this out. You know, we're fortunate to have you on the podcast. You know, you're definitely one of the big thinkers in this space. And so we've got you here. So I want to ask um, sort of a closing question. What aren't we talking about? We've talked about that investment's going to flee the space. We've talked about that this is going to have grave consequences uh, for patients. But if this went into place, have you thought about any other unintended unintended consequences that we're not going to see? What are you thinking about that's not being talked about? Yeah, so if we were to enact a policy like this, we'd be essentially importing other countries' systems of establishing price into the U.S., right? And other, many other countries use um, what's called health technology assessment where they look at the outcomes primarily from a clinical trial to say what the drug is worth. And let's think about what the data is in a clinical trial. It's the worst data you're ever going to have on that drug. It's the time of launch. The data over time that you collect in the real-world setting is more representative, um, and uh, it shows, you know, outside of this very artificial system, what a drug is worth. Right now, because the markets that use the health technology assessment and often a quality of life year um, metric to set price are relatively small, um, it doesn't have a huge impact on the clinical development programs for drugs. You generally see clinical development um, done on patients who are a fairly clean population. They don't have comorbidities. They are able to get to the clinical trial site. Unfortunately, this has had the unintended consequence of making clinical trials less diverse than the actual population taking the drug. It also probably shows the biggest incremental benefit of the drug because you have a population that um, has fewer interactions, uh, probably more able to adhere to the regimen um, because they have the, um, the access to capital and, and the ability to, to comply. If prices are now going to be set based on the clinical trial data because we're importing them from other countries, you're going to have a real movement, I think, to keep the clinical trial data as clean and as sort of high impact as possible, which is going to move in counter to um, what the FDA has advised and what a number of biopharma companies are trying are also trying to do, which is to make the clinical trials more diverse, consider dropping um, some of the exclusions for comorbidities, and that will work very much in counter to the diversity in clinical trial efforts that have been made. I think a second unintended consequence is you're not going to see drugs being launched outside of the U.S. until several years later. And again, let's think about the impact on global health. We look at this pandemic. If especially infectious diseases aren't treated outside of the U.S., that affects the U.S. If chronic diseases aren't treated outside of the U.S., that affects the U.S. because we have a market and, and trade systems that rely on increasing productivity globally. We rely on those countries to buy our stuff. So I, I think there's, there's the two effects, the clinical trial data, and um, sort of pressure against diversity in clinical trials. And second is the impact on the global economy if medicines were not launched outside of the U.S. Well, I think those are those are two really good ones. We have this huge issue around clinical trial, trial diversity. And finally, actors are moving in the right direction. And there's a whole host of explanations 
but it does seem like there's been this call to action. So to hear that, you know, we're going to be undermining that because you're right. If we do, and and I, I'm so glad you're flagging this because light bulbs are going on that this is really going to be a key element. If we're going to import their price controls, we're also going to have to import how they value medicine. And there's, we had an episode or it wasn't an episode. We did an event with a lot of patient groups about concerns with qualities and how they don't properly value the, the patient experience. And so not only are we going to inherit some of these price control systems and health technology assessments that we know to be flawed, but I think that's a really good call out that it's also going to put pressure on having the cleanest possible clinical trial data, which is at odds with efforts to make clinical trials more diverse. And I don't think anyone's talking about that unintended consequence. Hopefully they will now. And I think your your other call out of we're going to see other markets being having delayed access to these drugs because we're now saying, you know, what we're going to charge in those markets it plays a relevant role in determining the price in the U.S. You're right. We're a global internet interconnected economy. Healthcare in other countries is a healthcare concern in the U.S., not just in covid times, but at all times. Those are two items that I think are worthy of more conversation. Um, I know you have probably several other items. We'd be fortunate to have you back on the show. But thank you. Thank you so much for all of this. Thank you, Kirsten Axelson, uh, the, the work CRA and your colleagues have done on these reports that you've done with the Incubate Policy Lab. Please check them out. You can find them and everything else on Incubate's website at www.incubatecoalition.org. A special thanks to Ashlyn Roberts and Olivia Lucani in making today's podcast. As always, keep innovating. You've been listening to Making Medicine. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves.